I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Caro Pop Podcast. I'm very happy to introduce this episode's guest, Lonnie Jordan, keyboardist, singer, and songwriter for the band War. During its 1970s heyday, War broke tons of ground with its mixture of soul, rock, funk, Latin rhythms, jazz, and much more. The band translated all this into a string of indelible hit singles that still hold up and get airplay today. It started with Spill the Wine, recorded with former animal Eric Burden when this band was assembled around him. Then, on their own, came All Day Music. All Day Slipping into darkness. Slipping into darkness. Cisco Kid. Cisco Kid. The, the world is a ghetto. Me and baby brother. Gypsy man. Why can't we be friends? Summer. And the undeniable groove that is Low Rider. The album The World is a Ghetto was the best selling album of 1973. Yet, how many members of War could you name? Yes, the band has as passionate fans, but everyday people who could sing along to many of those hits have no idea who performs them and how they got written. That changes right now. Lonnie Jordan is still performing under the war name and is on tour with the band right now with dates on the West and East Coasts. Years ago, some other original war members splintered off to form the Lowrider Band, so there's some messiness there. But Lonnie is the official keeper of the flame, which has begun shining more brightly. Rhino Records has launched a massive 50th anniversary campaign for war this year, re-releasing the band's first five albums as a vinyl box set on Record Store Day over the summer. It sounds fantastic. Also on the way, a new Greatest Hits 2.0 set coming October 29th. In great entertaining detail, Lonnie Jordan talks about this multiracial band's formation in Southern California in the early 60s, how it hooked up with Eric Burden, how it wound up with the name War, and how tired he gets of people thinking his band had anything to do with Edwin Starr's 1970 hit, War. Lonnie goes deep into the creative process, laying out how jam sessions yielded the songs we're still singing now. And because we're talking about L.A. in the 60s and 70s, he's got some insane stories to tell, starring Jim Morrison, Eric Burden, Janis Joplin, and many others. Did you know that Jimi Hendrix's final performance was with War? You'll hear about that, too. So fasten your seatbelts and enjoy low riding with Lonnie Jordan. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see. People don't know who you guys are necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that no. was kind of part of the idea early on, because it's, there's not like sort of a recognizable front man to war. Um, was the idea always like you're this collective that's going to be known together? 
Well, it, it all it all became like we were. I I would imagine to a lot of people uh, we were the black phantoms <laughs> per se. You know, we were like a ghost group with a name called War. Like wars is just many, 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 many people involved in battle. You know, uh, including uh, civilians, and that's basically what we were. We were pretty much, uh, 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 what would you call it, a, a set into a um, a picture of uh, a scene, pretty much, uh, without any, uh, like you said, no lead man, no no lead, no nothing. It was just about the music and the message, messages, grooves and messages. I would say. Right. So, uh, and but doing it on purpose, we. You know, just like we didn't even really know about uh, music that much, really. We just played. We just played from feelings. And if you didn't capture it on tape, then it was all lost. And that's basically what we were. We were like a special, we were a unique group as it was. Right. And, and calling ourselves war was, you know, no, no exception, you know, for the way we were. So and the way we were writing, so everything we did was pretty much in a ghost, ghostly way. It wasn't traditional at right. all. Right. Well, you're in the message of the band is peace and love. So there's a certain, you know, irony to you know having a band called War, having an anthem called you know that goes Why can't we be friends? Like that's more what you guys are about than certainly it's not a pro-war band called War. Well. Well, we called ourselves war because the Vietnam War was going on. People, a lot of revolutionary uh, was going on, and and uh, uh, and and, it, and, it, and we call ourselves war uh, for for peace and letting people know that we were raging wars against wars going on across the water in our own backyard, right. and we were talking about pretty much back then that uh, our choice of weapons was our musical instruments, which did not shoot out, shoot bullets, and it didn't draw blood, but it did draw uh, emotions of, uh, of uh, memories, and, and, uh, and it also healed people because we uh, pretty much saw ourselves as uh, doctors of music. So, because our music healed people, we never saw ourselves as a major big star group. We only saw ourselves as pretty much uh, uh, as uh, troubadours, you know, pretty much uh, making people aware of what was going on in the world. It was for people that didn't travel much, didn't know what was going on on the other side of the earth, across the water, and and that's pretty much why we wrote songs like "The World Is a Ghetto" and 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 album cuts like "We Have the Answer to All of Your Problems." Bobby. Right. Well, you know, all those things, they were all messages. And uh, But like I said, we didn't know that we should have called ourselves war. That was our manager and producer. We thought it was a little bit too out there. But then we realized, wait a minute, the music, though, that we're making with all the uh, mixture, uh, like blues, Latin, gospel, jazz, reggae, I mean, the list goes on is a, a pretty much a mixed salad bowl, a gumbo, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I figured, uh, we figured, well, 
hey, well, it's not bad because we are at peace with our war. We're raging war, you know, uh, uh, against wars, like I told you. So, right. Uh, so, uh, so what was big for us? We realized the war, the name, the name war is bigger than the band. <laughs> so, and that's another reason why we didn't uh, uh, try to make ourselves big. We didn't have a front man. Everyone was a leader in our band, which was also unique. And we had a mixture of people in our band, also from different parts of the country. That's including Eric Burden. At, in the beginning right i was gonna say you started off with a front man when you started making records which was you guys yeah. were linked up with eric burden from the animals but i'm gonna even back up further than that you started he off didn't want, he, he didn't want to be the front man though he just, he wanted to be part of the band so he would pick up an instrument like a cowbell a percussion or something and he was saying lead but he would back off and let us take over you know so, uh, like doing, like making a movie. We were doing a background scene music, and he would pretty much ad lib because we didn't have any songs. We didn't do any animal songs when we were performing, and we didn't do any of our new stuff or old stuff that we used to do. We just all pretty much uh, 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 just uh, uh, just did new stuff. That, like I said, if you didn't turn the tape on, then you missed it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I know there's a lot of improvisation in those Eric Burden and War albums. It's not just like, here's here's Eric Burden's new backing band. Uh, it's it's definitely much more than that. But let's let's go let's go back to the the band was formed in the early sixties, like sixty two in Long Beach, and you were originally the creators. Right. Yeah. Well, Compton also. Compton was never on the map back then. It was always Watts or Long Beach, half of us Harvest City, San Pedro. Watts and Long Beach. So, and you, where, where did you come out of? I came out of Compton. Okay. Not straight out of Compton, but out of hmm. Compton. <laughs> Got it. And so, you, so you were the creators. And what was the sound back then? And and how many of you were in that group? It was always seven pieces, and but it was a trumpet and a saxophone player. Then uh, the Oscar came in later with the harmonica, and we created the unique sound of a harmonica and saxophone forever. But uh, but it was seven, and uh, our sound, we were doing a lot of um, uh, cover songs, and the majority of the songs uh, were songs like uh, Calypso-type music, you know, the Harry Belafonte, right. blah, blah, blah. We did a lot of jazz stuff, you know. I mean, we're talking about from... Um, uh, uh, Tony Bennett to Frank Sinatra to uh, to Herbie Hancock to uh, Bill Evans. Um, we did a lot of country music, you know, uh, uh, from Ray Price, uh, uh, even some Patsy Cline. Uh, we did everything. Like I said, we were a, a pretty much of a universal gumbo group, a mixed salad bowl. Right. We we loved doing it all. And uh, gospel, Mahalia Jackson, Earl Grant. Um, we just we put it all together in one bowl and we ended up realizing, hey, wait a minute. When we started creating our own music, we realized that we put all of that together on on one table. We put everything on one table and found out that, uh, yeah, this is a good gumbo here. Let's keep going. And Eric saw it and he, and he, and he uh, helped us believe not only Eric, but uh, Jerry Goldstein, our producer. Uh, and Chris Huston, our uh, engineer, who came out of the um, uh, the era of uh, uh, doing a lot of recording for 
Led Zeppelin and, and the Rascals and people like that. And he came in with us and gave us our raw, dry sound. And Jerry Goldstein, the producer, saw that we, he kept running the tape and he knew you got to keep running the tape. And he saw that we had a raw, dry, unique, mixed sound that he didn't understand at the, at the time. But he tried, he put it together, edited all the stuff and found out that we had something and he stuck with us ever since then and eric saw it in the beginning you know he loved it as uh, he loved us as a live band but he just didn't want to do eric burden more but he had to and when i say he didn't want to do eric burden more he didn't want it labeled eric burden and war uh like i said he just wanted to be part of the band and just let it be called war and uh of course he was also having issues with uh, his label at the time uh, so that's why he had to leave because he didn't want us to be involved in the red tape and chaos that he was having with his record label at the time so he had to uh, part with us and he gave us his blessing and we kept going from there yeah there are always label issues and business issues you know then and now and um, yeah. you know it's always complicated when you get the business part involved when you when you were playing originally and it was still uh, the creators were there other bands in LA doing sort of what you guys were doing were there any that you looked up to well there was one guy that I really liked who was playing organ and I loved playing Hammond organ at the time because I came I I was used to play in churches like when I was 10 9 10 11 and uh, uh, I used to love uh, this guy by the name of Leon Hayward he came into uh, a club that we used to play in when we were younger of course in, in the beginning years called Jeffy's in Compton and uh, he would come in and play jazz in this club. Of course, when we would uh, play, we would play like all the hits that was out back then. You know, Johnny Taylor, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, James Brown. The list goes on. And uh, uh, and Leon Hayward came in playing jazz, and then he would play some funky stuff. And then come to find out later on, he started um, producing a song called "It's Got to Be Mellow." got to be mellow uh, some song called that and then all of a sudden she's a bad mother uh, <laughs> mammy jamma yeah she's a bad mammy jamma just as fine as she can be uh, he produced that for the artist so he he went on to do other things he came out of the jazz era into producing funky r&b music and i said wow he went from left field to right field and but then i realized that's basically what we were doing uh you know coming off the trails of uh Otis redding and all these other people sam cook and all that and and uh and even country music calypso music calypso before it became reggae and then we uh and then all of a sudden here we are i'm saying we're fusing all this stuff that we you know played and learn from other people and then we infused it with our own uh lyrics messages and songs that we were writing and there so what do you call it i call it universal street music there you go 
Yeah, I was trying to think of, you know, people are always trying to compare bands to other bands. And, you know, later, um, you know, people will say, oh, well, they were they, you know, this sounds sort of like Santana or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like even when you go down, like one of my favorite bands for the last, you know, many years is Los Lobos. And mm-hmm. I hear a lot of war in Los Lobos and they just covered World is a Ghetto on their new album. I could I could go on a whole Los Lobos thing. You you played on a Los Lobos record, I think. I think you played on I that sure album, did. The Ride. Um, yeah, I sure did. It was and you did, and uh, Mabel Mavis. Staples. Yeah, Mabel Staples. Yeah, sure well, did. Well, the, their new album, they have a version of World is a Ghetto, and it's not the short version. They okay. they stretch it out. They do the whole song, and it sounds fantastic. Um, oh, but I was thinking, okay. like, you know, when War was starting out, or the creators, um, you know, who who is even doing that sort of thing? And I was thinking, well... You know, the band Love was was also, you know, multiracial and their second album, De Capo, has a lot of that kind of sort of Latin rhythm stuff going on with the rock and with the, you know, kind of R&B sort of stuff all mixed together. So yeah. I, I don't know whether you knew those guys in L.A. or if they were sort of part of the same scene or any of that. Oh, oh yeah. Everybody was doing the same acid. <laughs> me, I think he was doing stronger mouth. acid than you guys were. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, he was older than us, too. John, what's the name? Um, Arthur Lee. Uh, Arthur Lee, yeah. Uh, well, you know something, when you think about it, uh, I, I have to take my hat off to Arthur Lee because uh, if you think about it, Arthur Lee inspired a lot of groups back then. I mean, not not to mention Jimi Hendrix. I mean, if you look right. at Arthur Lee and you look at his band, you listen to him play guitar and what he was doing back then. And then when I met Jimi Hendrix, I heard a lot of Arthur Lee. But Arthur Lee was definitely hooked into uh, what was really going on back then. He, he could have been much more bigger had had not the drugs taken over him too early. Yeah, you know? yeah, he had. They, I mean, we, we could have a whole art, we could have a whole love, uh, you know, geek out here. You know, Forever Changes is a fantastic record, and then the band broke up, and he still did some great music after that. But it was never, mm-hmm. it was never quite the same. But you hear, you know, his influence on, you know, Jim Morrison with the vocals. They were both on the same label, um, yeah. so you know, I assume Jim Morrison was somewhere in your circle back then too. The Doors. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of parties that Eric Burden and my manager and producer was throwing uh, in Beverly Hills. I had a chance to meet a lot of these people. Uh, when I say these people, I'm talking about Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, all the American uh, uh, singers who I really didn't know who they were when I was young back then. Eric thought it was funny because I was young. I said, "Who are these people?" And I knew who the British uh, uh, entertainers were, including Eric. I knew. Uh, who uh, um, Mick Jagger was and and some of the other uh, entertainers who would visit, uh, frequently visit Eric all the time. I knew who they were, Uh, but the only American one that I really knew was new on the scene was Jimi Hendrix. uh, But I, I, I did not know any of the other ones except through radio, and I still didn't know. I didn't know Lydia Pence was. I had no clue who she was. Any of them <laughs> until later on. I even had a run-in with Jim Morrison, and they keep telling me I, that we both got into a little quarrel. But <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I think it was. Uh, oh, it's too, too bad. Of, I want to hear about it. <laughs> it was one of those parties. Uh, one of those parties because Jim Morrison lived right down the hill, walking distance, right behind where Eric, because Jim Morrison loved Eric Burden. And if you listen 
to some of the style of Jim Morrison singing. I know you told me that he was influenced a lot by Love, uh, Arthur Lee. But if you listen to uh, his, his singing style when he yells, you will hear a lot of Eric Burton. I can hear that, yeah. Yeah, he loved Eric Burton. And he lived, like I said, he lived right behind Eric, and he used to come up to the house, and he would just uh, camp out. Eric and, and my producer and, and uh, manager at the time, they didn't even know who half the people was in the house. They didn't know who was even in the house. <laughs> they didn't know anyone was in the house. It's just that people used to come and camp. They would stay there after a night of a big party, and most of them would stay there recouping. You know, and some just thought they they lived there. They forgot that they had a, they had a home to go to. So that's the way it was back in those days. And uh, Jim Morrison was one of them. But I still didn't know who he was. All I knew was that one night of the party that I. Uh, myself and Eric was sitting on the piano. Everybody was just grooving. Everybody was, you know, walking around. Everybody was smoking and just doing their thing. And um, all of a sudden, I see this guy on top of the piano. And I tried to pay no attention because I want to feel like I belong. I want to be part of the crowd and pretend like none of this is going on. So I pretend like I'm high. <laughs> so, but, you know, in reality, I was drinking whiskey and, and smoking weed. I uh, saw this guy dressed in a Superman outfit, little guy, and a uh, long-haired little guy. And I looked up, and and he he kept rolling his fist around in a, in a motion, looking down at me and Eric. And and that was the moment that I was um, creating music of uh, creating spill the wine actually, uh, because I felt like. Eric will love if I go into a Latin group because uh, some of the other music that I was influenced by was a lot of Latin music also, bootleg music that came out of New York via Puerto Rico and Cuba. So uh, I would take a lot of these grooves on the piano, and when I was playing it, uh, Eric was uh, singing, and we were just grooving and trying to create something, you know, and all of a sudden, I looked up, and this guy and I put his foot on the lid of the piano and kicked it over onto our hands, and we pulled our hands out just in time. And I think what it was now as I think about it, I think Jim Morrison was jealous because I was grooving with Eric. He loved Eric so much as a uh, as like um, uh, starstruck, not starstruck, but uh, Eric was his his um, model for life, you know, for music. And I didn't know that till later, you know. And, um, and so that uh, so that was Jim Morrison in a Superman outfit, kicking the kicking the piano yeah, he, onto your fingers, the piano exactly. lid. Exactly. That's and not exactly. cool, Jim Morrison. And he, and he flew. Well, he was high. And he jumped down from the he jumped down from the piano like Superman would, and he came up to me. He was he was upset because I was creating music with Eric, and uh, uh, it was something about me playing piano. He had a great piano player himself, so why would he get upset with me? I don't know, but he um, he was intimidated by me. And he didn't know me. We would we never met, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so uh, he come up to me still rolling his fist at me, you know, just rolling it, rotating it around, and said, I bet you would like to hit me. <laughs> That's what he said. I bet you like to hit me. I said, no. 
but I think you should probably get out of my face. <laughs> and the thing was is that he, I got this contact from him, and it kind of scared me more than anything was the contact. I said, what is that I'm feeling? Wow. And then I realized I was getting contact through, from, from the whole house. But by the time Jim and I was confronting each other, I put my finger on his chest. That's what I remember. And when I put my finger on his chest, that's when I told him you should get out of my face. And he started backing up, <clears throat> swimming backwards like he was in the water swimming. And that freaked me out. <laughs> and, I, and then I realized that Eric ran, uh, ran up the stairs, came back down with a gun and shot the chandeliers out trying to make everybody leave because he was so pissed off. And, uh, and, 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 what, and now we're talking about the second phase of what scared me besides the contact high was the fact that no one jumped or ducked when Eric shot the chandeliers out. He shot it out twice. But he just came down no. with an Eric Burden, came, go, went, got a gun, came down, shot the chandeliers and, out, and, and everyone was just kind of standing around like groovy. Like nothing happened. Wow. And I'm the only one, I'm the only one that ducked. <laughs> Understand, I came out of Compton. <laughs> and when I hear a gunshot, I duck, and I realized when I ran around there, it was Eric with the gun, and, and he and he just he realized that no one was moving, so he went back up, put it away, and everybody came down, and he came up missing, and I, I, I guess I don't know some somebody grabbed him, some young lady or somebody I don't know, but uh, I I went back into the room where Jim was, and I realized I said that's the same guy. He was laying in a fetal position uh, in the fireplace. Because it was around Christmas time, I remember that. <laughs> I hope there wasn't was, a fire in it. I know. Well, it was cold, but he was like pretty close to the fire. And I remember this lady running in the house and saying, asking everybody, "Anybody see seen James? Where's James? James?" She was calling this guy James, and I said, "No." And come to find out later, it was his uh, wife or girlfriend, whoever she was. She came. I'll never forget it. She walked in. She saw him. I said, could that be him? And she looked and said, oh, James. And he's, you know, trying to wake up and everything. She picked him up like he was nothing. You said he was picked little. Like it was, yeah, she picked him up like he was nothing. And she took him down, you know, took him out the door down, down the hill to their house. He was right by, you know, he lived right behind uh, Eric. But he never stopped coming back. She knew where he was, obviously, because he, he would always come up there. So uh, Eric wouldn't get mad at him. And I realized that when they did a, a special on Jim Morrison, uh, I think it was, was it HBO or movie? It was a movie or something like that. Uh, Eric, they had Eric play the bartender uh, in the movie. Huh. Uh, because they realized that Jim Morrison loved Eric, and Eric, so Eric was part in part in the movie. So you know, but anyway, that was my that was my uh, connection or my contact with all these different groups. So Jim was one of them, and and I and I also had a run in with uh, Janis Joplin for the first time, and Eric had a big big laugh. Um, here I am, young with this big afro and bell bottoms. I'm young, you know, nineteen twenty. You know, and, uh, uh, we we did a gig, and Eric wanted some of us to go with him to uh, to Janis Joplin's concert. So 
I went. I said, I want to go because I want to be, you know, I want to be in with the scene. I just want to be part of it. I want to fit. So I went there and I saw this. Uh, he, we went into her dressing room and I didn't know who she was, where she was. I just heard of her. And I remember some of the songs that she did was that was part of the R&B uh, culture back in the early, early 50s. You know, like Bobby McGee and and, uh, uh, and all these other songs that she did. I said, wow, she's covering some, some old, uh, old songs that I grew up on. And so I went back to see who she was and, and I said, well, where is she? And I saw this one young ladies sitting at a lot of young ladies uh, sitting around and, and one of the young lady was sitting on like a throne you know like a queen and i didn't know who that was i just thought it was just somebody high and with a bottle of southern comfort in their hands just acting wild like all like all the ladies were and, and come to find out as eric was walking up she recognized eric eric was busted up laughing and they they stayed and talked i never returned So 1969, uh, you know, you you have your band. It's you and Howard Scott and Harold Brown and who else is in there? Charles Miller. Uh, it's pretty D. much, yeah. Papa uh, D. Lee Oscar and B.B. Dickerson. Right. So all of you are backing Deacon Jones, who mm-hmm. was a f- football player on the Rams, yeah. who's also had a uh, soul career. And that was when that was when uh, Jerry Goldstein saw you. I think it was you were playing at the Ragdoll in North Hollywood, is what I've read. That's and he was the one who connected you to Eric Burden. <clears throat> yeah, and it was Peter Rosen who invited Jerry Goldstein and uh, Bruce Garfield and all those guys to come down and hear us play because he told them that uh, that we were his band, <clears throat> that we were back in Deacon Jones and all that. So. Uh, so they came down to hear us play, and uh, and Eric came came up on stage uh, playing the, to jam with us. But it wasn't Eric; it was Lee Oscar on harmonica, and we thought it was Eric, but it was Lee. So, but Eric listened to us, and as he listened to us jam, uh, he just uh, listened to us and said, "Wow, that's me, bandmate." <laughs> that's my band <laughs> and uh, he fell in love with us first sight man and just said we gotta we gotta do something with this band and before jerry goldstein my producer could say anything or call him eric had already uh, uh, uh put a uh, uh set an appointment for rehearsal at the sir santa monica studio rentals and uh for us to do a small rehearsal in order to take us out on the road before any recording or anything. And so, because uh, we were a, more of a live band than a recording band, but that was one of the unique part about it is that Jerry took us in uh, with Chris Huston and uh, took that attitude, that concept of a live band to take and then edit things down and create music from different short edits that he made. And then, and that's how we started creating our music uh, and songs in the studio. But um, yeah, uh, Deacon Jones was doing. He had two songs that he needed us to play live with him. One of the songs was called "A Love and a Pro," and the other side was called uh, "It's Not How You Win or Lose, But How You Play the Game." <laughs> and he had three girls backing him up. Just so happened to be the original I catch. 
Vanessa, or hmm. Vanetta, Vanetta, Jesse, and Robert. Robert, yeah. They were the original Ikets, and uh, they knew Jerry because Jerry did some work with them. Eric started conjuring up in his mind uh, improvis- improvisations of doing a movie on stage and us playing, and he would just improvise lyrics. And, uh, and like I said before, if he didn't record it, it got lost. If you listen to Spill the Wine, it's he's kind of like narrating a movie. Like that's the narrative of that song. Um, was he? Was that basically you guys working up a groove and him, him sort of coming up with those that story? And and also, are you the one who actually spilled the wine? I, I spilled the wine, but but again, from the beginning, I was uh, uh, Eric and I was creating. Uh, pretty much that song at that party the Jim Morrison kicked the piano lid on our hands. <laughs> that was the groove, but it was on piano. And I and uh, Eric told me to remember that, and I did. And I, I went into a sound uh, our sound studio, and I started playing it in, in the with the band, and the band started adding on to it with me. Uh, and then uh, we took it into the studio, and uh, we recorded it, and then uh, we left the track for eric to come up with some type of uh, uh lyrics so i walked in one night when eric was trying to do it was trying to come up with lyrics he and jerry goldstein because uh, jerry goldstein is a a great writer himself you know coming from the old school uh, my boyfriend's back and i want to you know and i want candy and and hang on sleepy and all that that was that was uh, jerry's uh era but anyway i um when I walked in, uh, the track was playing, and Eric was inside an isolated booth. The lights was set real low, and uh, and I couldn't tell who was in the little small isolated booth. I did see two heads, but one person was real short, and I, and I just saw the back of the head. <laughs> but I did see Eric's face <laughs> standing up. So he's trying to come up with the song, and all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I I wasn't, I didn't have any uh, any acknowledgement of uh, uh, good wines. Okay, I was still drinking old big bottles of cheap headache wines, so I had this big bottle of Gallo wine that I would bring in from the store, uh, so was, you know, to comfort me. So I had a styrofoam sitting on the council board. Man, I'm still looking at Eric and trying to figure out what's going on in there. And I wasn't paying attention. And when I was pouring that wine, Eric was watching me because he's he's watching everything going on inside the uh, recording uh, uh, booth, the record control room, rather. So anyway, I poured it. And all of a sudden, (laughs) I said, wow. And I wasn't watching. And it poured all into the board. And everybody jumped up. And Eric looked, and he busted up laughing. He couldn't stop laughing. And it, and uh, uh, the engineer said, he spilled the wine in the board. And Eric started singing, the spill. he spilled the wine. He spilled the wine. And, and Jerry, while all this chaos was going on, an idea popped in his head, spill the wine. And Eric started singing as, as all of a sudden smoke came out of the board. <laughs> and it fried the board out. But, uh, but to save face, uh, we, uh, uh, Chris Huston turned the two track on so that we wouldn't lose the, the idea. So 
as the board. <laughs> so the second engineer came in and tried to turn down everything except for the two track. And so we kept the idea going and Eric kept singing and singing. And so they had to shut that down. And so we had to go next door around the corner to the, the main, uh, the room that they were building. Uh, still under construction, but it was uh, almost done. So, but it was recordable. So we went in there, and we started finishing the song. And so Eric uh, started coming up with more of the lyrics. He and Jerry uh, started coming up with the uh, with the story. And uh, there it was, spill the wine. <laughs> and the girl, of course, Carmen. I finally realized when she stood up and turned her face. Oh. I don't, and I, so I had to meet her, you know, Carmen, and uh, she was the girl that spoke Spanish on the record. Right. Did what? you expect that song to be the smash that it was? I mean, that was a no, big I hit didn't. right out of. I mean, you start working with him, and it's your first single, and yeah. and and boom. No, no. We. I, I'm gonna tell you right now. They put the song out in the states, and we decided to go to England and do a tour of England and Germany and all that. And by the time we got back to England, we. Uh, uh, I'm laying in bed. I didn't hear the song on the radio. I think I heard the song on the radio. No, no, I never heard it on the radio because they just put it out. So I'm just waiting. I said to myself, this song ain't going to happen. It's Latin and it's got too much, you know, it's, it's too much like the Fania All-Star thing. And it, it ain't going to happen. I was up being all negative and everything. And uh, here I am sitting in England and come to find out because Eric was from England the uh, the BBC radio started playing the song first, and it just busted up the chart almost like in one day. I been so, uh, I got a call from somebody, someone called me, I can't remember who, but they said, turn on your radio. And I said, okay, what station? There's only three, BBC One, BBC Two, or Three. So I turned it on, and which were the main stations, you know, and I turned it on. As soon as I turned on the radio, there it was playing. And the DJ talking about uh, Eric Burden, and you know, they would just say Eric Burden then, you know, but later on they started saying Eric Burden more. And that was another reason why we probably didn't get too much recognition in the beginning because it, they would only say Eric Burden. Then when war came out, they would confuse war with the song War, Edwin Starr and right. War. They would confuse Edwin Starr and the song War with Eric Burden and the group War. So that got a little confusing, too. Would people but, yell at you, like, what is it good for? And you're like, that's not all, us. All the time. I could almost smack some people for saying that. Then I said to myself, why don't we just re-record that song? <laughs> they won't believe us when I say we didn't. They say, oh, come on, play it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no. but, uh, but anyway, that's... That was the making of Spill the Wine. What did you What did you think of him? I mean, he's this British guy. He's been had a fair amount of success, um, you know, clearly into your music. But what was what would you What was your impression of him? I, you know, something. I was really impressed that he was able to come up with lyrics like like, like rappers would do, just off the fly. He would come up with lyrics, and we would follow him. Then he would follow us. He and just it was like magic together. And I take my hat off to him. He taught me a lot and how to uh, pretty much um, uh, connect with the audience uh, with. Uh, creating music like that, creating lyrics and creating music like, like I said, like a movie scene uh, on the fly. The, and then the other thing was that I found out that he came out of Newcastle, which was a mine, uh, a coal mining uh, city, pretty much uh, like a Compton, <laughs> you know, so no wonder he loved the blues so much. 
because he had the blues. <laughs> and I hated the blues because I grew up around the blues at the time. Mm. Mostly the bands that he had would usually play one, threes, fours, and five chords that were just, you know, simple blues chords. It wasn't really bluesy. But the way we played it, like if you heard, a, heard Jimmy Smith playing blues or jazz blues that's that's just right. you know, jazz blues that's the way we played ours and and no one ever played behind eric like that so you know especially if you hear like mother earth you know which i know that question's coming up yes we did play with Jimi hendrix for one hour well let me take that back he played with us for one hour at ronnie scott's the night and the last night before uh, his last the performance last yeah, his last performance the night before he passed away. And but ironically, when we did Mother Earth, he went back to Mother Earth, and that was weird for me, being young, you know. And we, here we are singing this song. When it all is a, uh, you got to go back to Mother Earth, and uh, and he went back to his flat, and that was it. And Monica, his girlfriend at the time, called Jerry because they knew Jerry and Steve real well. Uh, you know, and because Jimmy was uh, Jimmy was a good friend of, uh, of Eric and Eric and uh, Jimmy met uh, uh, Jerry and Steve. And it was just a tight family friendship from that point on. And and at the bungalows, of course, where everybody used to stay and, uh, you know, including John Belushi, a whole bunch of people stay there. And uh, Jimmy used to come there all the time. And that's actually that's where I met Jimmy Hendrix. Before we did our concert at uh, Devonshire Downs in uh, California, uh, it was a three-day festival with uh, Frank Zappa. I think Janis Joplin was on that. Marvin Gaye, Jimi Hendrix, us, the Grassroots, uh, the Doors. There's a lot of people on that uh, concert, three-day concert. Jimmy would always come down and jam with us, just sitting around the table. We just he would just play his guitar. Uh, uh, case and we would just play uh, ashtrays and whatever was around and we, we would just jam he loved jamming with us you know because he related he connected to us because and and he knew that we all ran past each other in the past and uh, he would play seattle he would play behind a whole bunch of other uh artists and like the Isley Brothers, Little Richard, and we played by a lot of people, too. And we ran past each other back in the day in the Chitlin Circuit, we called it. And uh, we would play behind Little Willie John, Little Johnny Taylor, groups that were just looking for bands to back them up in different regions, uh, uh, regional markets, you know. So we were that band that was always available uh, to play behind people. So we had that opportunity to play all types of music. Even country music in Long Beach, when uh, Long Beach uh, had a, 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 a variety of uh, country clubs, you know. So, and, so Jimi Hendrix was sitting when he was sitting in with you uh, mm -hmm. that last show of his life. Like he was, he was not kind of out front, right? He was just. It was another, you know, occasion where someone they just wanted to be part of the band, right? And he was kind it, of. It was an it was an occasion. Yeah, he, he he had no effects on his guitar. It was just a simple, small little amplifier and a guitar. And uh, we all just uh, jammed for, I would say, I would say exactly 45 minutes of one song. And uh, everyone took a solo. My guitar player, Howard, Howard took a solo. 
uh, Charles Miller and Sax took a solo, the Oscar Harmonica took a solo. I didn't want a solo. So I just loved playing those chords, backing everybody up. And of course, Eric was singing. And then uh, Jimmy took a solo. And uh, the, the, the solos took most of the night. And if I took a solo, it would have been the whole night. Hmm. So I decided to, to opt out. <laughs> and there's no recording of this? Uh, so, you know, something, there was a recording. Someone approached me long, to, about maybe a couple of years ago, and, and, and uh, sent me a recording, a cassette recording, and he said that it was recorded on a reel-to-reel, old Sony or TAC or something like that. And uh, he had to re uh, furbish it and put it on cassette and it was so badly it sounded so bad until I couldn't really hear it that well uh, and then somebody else I was told also recorded it but I don't know who has access to that I think Jerry Goldstein might have access to that I just haven't heard it and and uh, I'm sure we if we do have it it'll be re-released but there's so much red tape So you had two albums that you did with with Eric Burden. There was Eric Burden Declares War, and then there was uh, the second one, The Black Man's Burden, which is probably right. not a title they would use now, um, but uh, mm-hmm. which which has like this really long medley version of Paint It Black and uh, these other versions of Nights in White Satin, and it's mm-hmm. it does sound like you. It does sound like War. It sounds like you guys stretching out with this kind of mm-hmm. other Eric Burden stuff going on on it but it actually does sound like the same band and then i guess you were touring for that album in europe and and he just left mm-hmm. in the middle of it and you sort of continued and became more is that that's yeah. my understanding of it yeah yeah well he gave it like i said he gave us his blessing he eric it was and is very sensitive person and and them you know for him they were just messing up his career you know they were messing up his dream because he had dreams with this band we had another single that we wanted to put out right after spill the wine that would have just exploded for him but unfortunately uh he, actually he was protecting us he was on mgm we weren't on a label yet but united artists was interested in us and um and so what happened they knew they couldn't get eric burden because he was already under contract and going through some issues so um, one of the main reasons why he left is because when we put out spill the wine mgm pretty much when we said the the record said eric burden and war but uh, unfortunately it had to be reduced down to eric burden because mgm would have automatically claimed war with eric burden thinking that he had a contract with us which we didn't we were clear to go anywhere so we went with united artists and eric figured i better leave now before it gets too ugly for you guys you guys are just now starting and you're going to start on the bad leg with these the red tape record labels so that's, that's the main reason why he left although was it he left in the middle of a tour right yeah, yeah, he, he had no choice. He knew we could. He knew that we could take uh, uh, take uh, take it on, take on the burden ourselves because we've been there, done that, seen that, was that. He knew. He knew we could do it without even doing any music that people know. We didn't do any music people knew. All we did was jam. So were there certain members of war that sort of pushed you guys in in whatever directions you went, or was it really this this sort of you know collective? 
you know, thought process the entire time. I mean, it sounds it was, like this collective, but obviously someone has to give it, take some leadership in there. No, there was none at all. It was just all organic. That was just the way we were. Yeah, so the and album War came out in 1971, like March. Yeah. Then in November, you had All Day Music, another album, same same year. And that had, yeah. had songs that people, you know, still... You know, people, that that one broke through a little more with the song "All Day Music," uh, "Slipping Into Darkness." Um, you know, again, was it just that organic sort of? You know, it, 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 was, it was organic, and 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 that was our "Slipping Into Darkness" was our gospel side. You know, that was something that we uh, we already had in mind uh, regarding our parents tell, uh, trying to persuade us to make sure that we. Uh, play our music going into the light and not into darkness with it. <laughs> you know, in other words, uh, you know, uh, some of our parents were all very religious and they didn't want us to play for the devil, <laughs> you know, so uh, old school, you know, so they just wanted to make sure our music was um, uh, for the purpose of uh, uh, the religion. So we we did that, and all day music, of course, was uh, pretty much a mixture of jazz uh, that was out, you know. And and if you listen to um, uh, every man has a master plan, that I was inspired by that, and that's how I came up with that that song, hmm. you know, the chords, and uh, and and that that that's you know again, it was it was always something either that I heard from the radio from jazz or from a gospel song or, or something that a lot of people don't really listen to that much, you know, of the younger peers that was listening to us back then. Well, yeah, Slipping Into Darkness, you have these kind of gospel-inspired vocals on there, but then the groove is kind of reggae also. So it's this kind of gospel reggae thing. And then, yeah. and then you know, a couple of years later, you have Bob Marley doing Get Up Stand Up, which, and, and I'm just like, wait a minute, it's the same, it's yeah, the same riff, inspired. basically. Da-na, 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 I mean. He, he was inspired. And uh, he, uh, some of his interviews that we saw, he was, uh, sometimes he would talk about us and, and, and as far as saying that he liked us because we were pretty much uh, a rebel type group of the United States, you know, uh, pretty much like him. But we, we weren't that <laughs> into being rebels because, well, I mean, he went through some terrific uh, uh, episodes of being uh, a rebellion. And we, we weren't rebellion. We were just, like I said, we were just being uh, troubadours, just making people aware of their surroundings. You know, we didn't get into politics. That's that's the difference, right? Except for Fidel. <laughs> well, that's why we couldn't play Cuba, <laughs> and, and we couldn't play Africa because we had mixture uh, in the band. You know that uh, that was a no-no in South Africa and North Africa. Couldn't come in there with a mixed band, right? So, but that's their problem. That. And then a year later, seventy-two, you had the album "World Is a Ghetto," and that was just that was it. You know, I think that people, you know, now kind of don't realize just what an enormous 
record that was. I think it was the best-selling album of 1973. I think it came out yeah. late 72. It's the best-selling album of 73. Uh, it's uh, Rolling Stone has it as number 444 on its 500 greatest albums of all time. Wow. Uh, World is a Ghetto was a big hit. Uh, the Cisco Kid was a big hit. Um, mm. And and when you listen to that album. I, again, I was, I was like, there, there are just uh, what six songs on it, but each one has its own sort of style. Like, like the, it opens with the Cisco Kid, and that's kind of the sort of Latin salsa thing going on. And then you got Where Was You At, and that's this kind of gospel hand clapping thing. And then you got City Country City, which is this really long kind of jazz meets Latin. You know, that just keeps shifting styles in the middle of the song. And all then, different uh, all different personalities right four cornered room you got this kind of slow guitar psychedelic rock but then the vocals are this kind of gospel thing and then there's world is a ghetto which is just one of the great all-time you know long soul soul jams and mm-hmm. and then beetles in the bog sounds like it came out of new orleans and it gets a sing, <laughs> yeah. and it's a sing-along and it's around so you guys are all over the place on that record. And so the five albums that were on this, you know, Record Store Day collection that came out, the vinyl, um, were uh, the the War, All Day Music, The World Is a Ghetto, and then the next two are Deliver the Word, um, and uh, Why Can't We Be Friends? And Deliver the Word has uh, Gypsy Man on it, which is eleven and a half, you know, minute, you know, epic that just total groove. Me and me and that's, Baby Brother. That's short. Yeah, there you go. Me and Baby Brother, Southern Part of Texas. Those are fantastic songs. And then, uh, you know, afterwards you got uh, Why Can't We Be Friends, which has the title track. Interesting about that album, too, is that just the sequencing of it, you sort of think, oh, well, this is the album with Lowrider and Why Can't We Be Friends. But the Lowrider is like in the middle of side two. Why Can't We Be Friends is like the last song on the record. And it's just kind of this slow groove record you got leroy's latin lament uh, i assume yeah. that's you um, smile, and smile happy yeah smile happy okay. so and on most of these albums you are credited as a producer um what is what was what did you sort of bring to it from the producing end well jerry and i i i stayed in the studio 24 7 creating music uh, off the piano and so when the band would come in then i pretty much uh would coordinate um uh, how I, the concept of how I thought the song should be. I would play and the band would just jam with me and we just jam all day. And then finally at the end, then uh, uh, Jerry and I would get together and I would tell him, well, this section here, when he do, would do his edits, that right there could be, that sounds like it could be the song. Just take that out and then splice this this section together. Uh, kind of like Galaxy, you know, Um uh, so, I mean, all these long versions were longer. They were like an hour or two hours worth <laughs> of tape. We would edit things down to finally 11 minutes or 15 minutes into a song. And then uh, and my, uh, my part was uh, coordinating the music and uh, working with Jerry 24-7 um, and, and mixing, doing a lot of mixing because, you know, back then you, just, you needed a lot of hands. We didn't have automation yet. So, so I, I was in it for the uh, for the count. I was committed. <laughs> did so, Did you uh, know when you would hear like the groove of uh, Low Rider? Would we just like okay, that's a hit? No, we never thought. No, uh, again, that was another long version that was narrowed down. And then finally, when we heard it, and you have to understand when you're in the studio and you're hearing a track 
over and over and over and over until you go around in circles with it and and uh, either start hating it or liking it. <laughs> you don't love it until you hear the story that's put on it. Then you say, hmm, okay. And that's about as far as it goes with the, hmm, okay. But when you hear it on the radio finally, after the mixing and editing, going crazy with the edits and the mixing, and finally you hear it on the radio, then it gives you a totally different concept. But then you still don't get it until you start hearing it side by side with other songs. And then that's when you realize, oh, wow, our music is unique. I haven't heard another song that sounds like that. The song out right now that's on the radio, that's on the charts. But when you guys that's found that groove for Lowrider, you weren't like, uh-oh, this is hot. You know, this is it. It was sort of like, yeah, it's another one. No, well, that, that, right, you're right. Oh, this is another one. We never really thought much of going any further than the beginning of where we were inside a warehouse just playing or going to clubs playing we didn't really think we didn't when we started doing new, new music we didn't think it was radio friendly we didn't think it was anything friendly we but we didn't care with the song why can't we be friends sort of how did that come apart come about with you guys you know trading off the verses which one is yours also Oh, mine is the color of your skin don't matter to me. As long as we can live harmony. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It sounds like you. Yep, it is me. <laughs> Toward the end of our tour, we ended up in Japan, from the USA into Japan. And, um, and uh, from the USA, we used to always have to be on hold before we were able to go out to perform our concert because there was always issues out in the house. You know, with so many mixture of people that would come out to hear us, you know, different genres because our music had different genres of uh, everyone coming out. So you can imagine uh, all the people that came out in one place. Um, we um, finally, when we got to Japan and the same issue, we said, wait a minute. I mean, you would have Koreans, Japanese and Chinese coming to hear us play and they would all rule want to rule that we're their band where are you coming from hey this is our band you know everybody wanted to own us and and finally we had to be on a hold again and finally we just you know howard started uh, uh singing while i was playing this on the piano we all we always had our instruments backstage because we knew if we were on hold let's just go ahead and turn the tape on and start creating something so i'm playing this reggae group because i felt like i i wasn't in any time i'm not in the states i feel like i'm uh, uh on an island uh, 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 of rastafarians i always <laughs> thought that so i was playing this group same group and Howard got into the groove, started playing with me on guitar, and he actually come up, uh, came up with the um, uh, the theme, Why Can't We Be Friends? But it wasn't the same melody at the time it developed into Why Can't We Be Friends? But it, it got, it, it started developing more and more. And then finally, when we got to the States, we started playing some more gigs, the same scenario at, on hold. So backstage, we started again, turn the tape on, Why Can't We? And start, started going more and more. Finally, uh, we developed a final commitment to chord changes and why can't we be friends? That's all we had. 
So we took it into the studio, or our rehearsal studio, rather, rehearsal studio, and we started playing it, turned the tape on, but we needed lyrics. So we went into the studio and actually created each individual's line. That's how we developed the song. The rest of the song was in the studio, recording studio. So you guys just agreed, you know, we'll each take a verse, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and you got everyone's personalities in that too. And it's also this this universal theme. Is this something people say now? Why can't we be friends? Right, and everybody's verse was pretty much of how they felt at the time. That's why it uh, sounded convincing when each person took their their own line, like the Oscar. Sometimes I don't speak right, but yet I know what I'm talking about because he's from Denmark. <laughs> you know, the Oscar still has an accent. You know, uh, so uh, so it was it, it, it fit him the fact that he was just letting people know. You know, why can't we be? I know I can't speak right. But yet I know what I'm talking about, so why can't we be, you know, on and on, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it fit everybody, you know. So, so you guys were such a great, you know, ensemble and team and collective or whatever else you want to call it. Is there a chance you would all, like those of you who are still around, that you would be able to play music together? I mean, I know that business and other things have, you know, gotten in the way of some of that. But can you envision that you could all be friends and play music in a room together and maybe on a stage together? Uh, I, I can't say yes or no because I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know what the future brings us. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm still trying to figure out this uh, pandemic situation. But uh, I would say uh, if offered a good deal by somebody for a one-off performance, and it, ha- it would have to be a good performance, then only then I would uh, uh, take take it upon take it in consideration, but other than that, right now, uh, it, it doesn't look good. Yeah, because I know. I mean, I know this happened years ago, but there was sort of a split. I think four of the members formed the Lowrider Band. Um, you know, yeah. you've obviously kept working with Jerry, uh, and. You know, so I don't know, and I have no idea what the legal and business things are in there. Um, but you know, certainly there there are people who think, oh well, if you guys could play together, then you know, if the war reunion, people would, you know, come out with it or come out for uh-huh. it. Well, yeah, sort of. But uh, <laughs> only one thing that we are older, and uh, I like movement on stage. I love performing. I'm like 24-7 performing. I've got a lot of energy. I am also a raw vegan. You know, I, I eat uh, uh, not plant-based, but I eat edible plants. You know, and I, uh, I pretty much uh, know how to um, prepare foods taste just like your traditional food through plants. And uh, that gives me all the energy, enzyme, everything. Uh, that builds my immune system, everything. At 72 years old, and I out-energize the band. And they're, they're much younger than me. But this is what I do. I love it. I love my audience. They are my, my fans are my rock and roll hall of fans. And, uh, and I just, uh, I can't see it being going backwards uh, in reverse to try to uh, uh, beat something that's already dead. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I just can't, I, I don't see it that way, but like I said, unless there's a, an offer that I can't 
refuse. That's the only way. Like if you guys were offered to, to be, which should have happened already, if you guys were, you know, you know, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, would you, well, we would were, you all do that? We lost two times already. If that uh, inspired uh, someone that's involved or connected to the Rock and Roll Hall of uh, Fame uh, department or whatever, uh, offered us and asked if we could get together and play, and it would only be a one-off. But the offer, again would have to be a good offer, an offer that we can't refuse. I mean, was there like was was there like a big falling out or is it just more like everyone grew apart? We grew uh, both. We grew apart and a falling out when we tried to revise it and it just uh and it just didn't end well. And uh and so I just let be I let bygones be bygones and uh, move on, move forward because what's more important than an old band is that people are happy now of what I'm doing and and uh, when people tell me that oh you're a sellout you know they're absolutely right every show <laughs> I sell out <laughs> you know and they're absolutely right every show and and it, and that wasn't happening before because because the old band started getting a little bit lackadaisic. And, you know, sometimes you get to a point where you think you're a little bit more than your fans, then that's a no-no to me. I'm still a part of the fans, and I want to be a, the fans to be a part of me. And I want to entertain the fans as well as them entertaining me so we can all have one good time under, under one roof. Well, and it must be good to see, you know, Rhino putting together this campaign to really get your music back out there. I mean, besides this box, there's this, you know, other greatest yeah. hits. And it seems like they have a lot of projects with war where they're, they're making, they're, they're letting people sort of be exposed to the music who might not have been exposed to it before. And I would think that yeah. that would be something that you and all the surviving members would appreciate. Well, oh yeah. Well, I'm sure they appreciate it too, but don't get me wrong now. I still love the other guys. There's no hate here. Uh, and I, I have no animosity because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing and vice versa. Um, so uh, th there's there's no animosity. I don't talk bad about the guys. I love the guys. And I, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I wish them well and, and, and with their career and everything. But uh, again, the bottom line is the fans, you know. The, the fans can the fans brought us here and they can take us out and uh and i don't want to give up on my fans because of red tape and so unfortunately there's still lawsuits pending and uh, i don't think that'll ever end and uh, uh it, it's kind of worse than uh, a bad marriage and actually it is a, a bad marriage we had beautiful kids which is our music that we had and uh now our kids which is the music is older now and so all I'm doing is just um, uh, bringing back uh, people's uh, the eight track to their lives, you know, uh, reminiscing, flashback, whatever you want to call it. Have you gone back and listened to kind of these new pressings and everything? And does it bring back anything in the experience or the music that maybe you'd forgotten or hadn't thought about in a long time? Of, of, of course, I listened to the pressing, test pressing and everything and, and in order to approve it. And yes, I, 
uh, I, I have a flashback on my youth and, and what I was thinking at the time of creating the music and everything. Yes, but uh, you have to also understand when I'm playing live on stage, I'm, I'm also reminiscing. You know, I'm feeling good. It's, uh, and I kind of uh, bounce that to the people and uh, tell just really short snippets of a story of how the song was created. You know, I don't go into any long preaching or talking. I just let them know this next song, blah, blah, recorded here and there, blah, blah. Here it is, bam. You know, so and I have a good time because I'm also reminding myself as well as, uh, you know, letting people know my experience. Lonnie Jordan, it's been a true pleasure. You have such great stories and such great music, and I really appreciate you sharing both with us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Mark. That's a wrap on episode four of the Carol Pop podcast. Thanks so much to Lonnie Jordan, who's currently touring with war. Go to war.com for tour dates and seek out those Rhino reissues of war's catalog. They're pretty great and will open your ears. The next Carol Pop guest will be Ricardo Muti, music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and one of the world's truly legendary conductors. As a Chicago Tribune reporter, I covered Maestro Muti and the CSO on three European tours, including one that traveled to Russia and Muti's home country of Italy. And those were career highlights for me. Muti is wise, funny, and deeply thoughtful, and our discussion may make you think differently about the role of music in our lives. You'll also get to hear about his donkeys. Thanks to Lou Carlozo, the producer-engineer who recorded this interview, as well as the Carol Pop theme. For production, engineering, and arranging work, check out Karma Productions Worldwide, that's Karma with a C, and email Lou at Lou at Quoted.com, L-O-U at Q-W OTED.com. Thank you to Marty Rosenbaum, master web developer and even better collaborator. The Carol Pop podcast is produced by the amazing Chris Swake, who totally knows what he's doing, unlike some of us. Chris holds down this particular fort. Thanks, Chris. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M A R K C A R O, and visit the Carol Pop website, C A R O P O P.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also the Carol Pop podcast. Thanks so much.